This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Defense Information Systems Agency beat its own deadline to turn off its Milk Cloud platform, a service that had a lot of DOD customers. DISA accomplished this goal a week ahead of schedule. Sharon Woods, the director of the Hosting and Compute Center at DISA, tells executive editor Jason Miller about what the end of Milk Cloud means for the military services as they continue to move to cloud computing even without Milk Cloud. We actually just had a pretty major accomplishment. As of May 31st, we've migrated all of the Mill Cloud 2 accounts out of the environment, and then the contract expires on June 8th. So we managed to give ourselves a little bit of runway before, uh, before the contract expired. All right. So that's obviously good news. All the accounts, roughly how many accounts were there and and where did they go? What's that migration look like? It was an all hands on deck effort. We had to work really closely with the customers to pull that off. There were 120 accounts total, 95 of those were in the actual Mill Cloud 2 environment. The Delta there were customers that were in commercial cloud already. But of the 95, 60 of those went to Stratus, DISA's private cloud offering. 18 of them went to commercial cloud. And then there were 17 whose accounts they just let expire. They were typically R&D or sandbox environments that had already served their purpose. So in total, it's over 1,700 terabytes of data and 820 virtual machines for folks that that information is meaningful to. Were you surprised about how many went to Stratus? You know, about two-thirds went to Stratus. I'm, I'm not great with math, but uh, it's almost. Yeah, that sounds right to me. I don't know that surprised is the right word, but... I do think we were deeply appreciative of how flexible customers were with us when we made this announcement. You know, it was an unexpected decision, and I know that it was unexpected and put some customers in a a difficult situation. So the fact that two-thirds of them chose to stay with DISA and to consume Stratus as their private cloud offering was really great for that to be the outcome from our perspective. And those that moved to commercial cloud, those 18, were they mostly in a commercial cloud? Like I know Mill Cloud 2 offered AWS, it offered Azure, it may have offered some others. If they were already in, let's say, AWS, did they just stay in AWS? And it was kind of a, this is a dirty word in cloud, I know, lift and shift to the commercial cloud version of AWS, as an example. There were already customers that were in commercial cloud, and they stayed in commercial cloud. The 18 that moved to commercial cloud, they were in mill cloud, too, and had gotten their applications to a point of being cloud ready. And so this just provided the opportunity to make that final step and jump into commercial cloud. So, you know, I see that as a positive move. If commercial cloud is the right environment for a mission partner, then that's where they should be to meet their requirements. Uh, You know, the hosting and compute center, one of our key philosophies is being an honest broker. So sometimes, you know, that means consuming an offering that we're providing, like Stratus as a private cloud environment. But other times it may mean going to a, a commercial cloud provider. And we have the expertise to help guide customers in the different ways they could meet their requirements and, and which ones might be the best for them. One of the surprising things as well is when DISA made this decision, I think there was a lot of concern about, can we do it? Is it enough time? What did that really mean from your perspective and and the the services you provided? When we sent out the initial notice, I think everyone felt a sense of urgency because the date was less than six months away. I think some of the things that helped make this work 
when I say, you know, all hands on deck within DISA, it wasn't just the team that historically had worked on Milk Cloud 2. We surged a lot of our personnel in order to help customers do this, and not just within the hack, but across other um, offices within DISA. We know that this was difficult for customers to receive. This was not desired news. And so DISA really made a commitment to surge as many people as possible to try and alleviate as much burden on the customers themselves. And then we've had relationships with all of these customers for years. You know, we know their capabilities, we knew their applications. And so with us having more resources at the table, I think that was you know, really key in making the transition. And they were all so collaborative. And that is also something that I think was a key driver in the success. Over the years, there's been some discussion, well, whatever happened to Milk Cloud 1, that instance, is that also shut down or has that been merged into Stratus? So what does this mean that, that one, Milk Cloud 2 is down, but what does this also mean about Milk Cloud 1? Milk Cloud 2 is sunsetting. Milk Cloud 1 is sunset as well. So that as a capability no longer exists. For Stratus, we did consume some of that very basic underlying infrastructure, but then immediately layered on a lot of new capabilities so that it became a new capability unto itself. There was some discussion, I remember, over the years that some folks never moved off of Mill Cloud One. So it's sunset in the sense of no one else can get on it or, or use it, but are there still some applications using or, or those even those applications have been moved to Stratus too? No, that's that's a fair question as well. So there were some applications that were still on the Mill Cloud One hardware. And so by consuming that, that hardware, that infrastructure, they didn't have to make a second migration, if you will, but you know, they're already enjoying the new capabilities that are coming with the Stratus capability. And when we talk about MillCloud 2 and, and the fact it's sunsetting, a lot of agencies, a lot of the, your customers, those 95 customers had said, hey, we're going to use this for this next year. You had, had mippered money to DOD or to DISA to pay for their services because obviously you can't consume something that you don't have money for. There was, uh, I'd heard again through the rumor mill and, and it was unable to confirm this for real, but I just wanted to get your take on it. If military service X sent us a million dollars for this type of virtual machines, and now we only use six months of those virtual machines, was this able to return money to, to service X or was there some challenges there? For the 18 that left us uh, altogether, Depending on the period of performance for that particular task order and the funding type, they may end up returning money, but I don't have the exact numbers in front of me right now. Did you have any concern or did you express any concern to customers that, hey, we're not sure how, how this is going to work or, hey, customer X, you may be, we're not 100% sure we can return your money or was, there, was that never a really a big concern for just uh, meaning, hey, if there's money due, we'll get it to you. So we were transparent with customers from the beginning, and I think all of us collectively, customers and DISA, knew that funding was going to be a challenge that we needed to resolve. So we worked really hard to figure out within the constraints of fiscal rules how to make sure as much money as possible 
was not being returned. So for the 60 of 95 accounts that moved to Stratus, we were able to avoid funding challenges for the 17 of the 95 that sunset their environments. You know, obviously that wasn't a concern for them. But like I said before, for the 18, you know, there may be some challenges. We're still just finalizing the exact numbers, but we've been working on on that with them since the very beginning. Sharon Woods, director of the Hosting and Compute Center at the Defense Information Systems Agency, speaking to Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same. Uh, Whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. and, and, And he was just really honest with me. And he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really, it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and and how's that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted 
they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do, where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That's, that was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney, but, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Anyone else have trouble sleeping last night and the night before that? Same. 
And I've tried everything, but it either doesn't help me sleep so I'm cranky and tired the next day, or I sleep and then I'm drowsy the next day. Luckily, Seize the Night and Day is here. Go to SeizeTheNightAndDay.com to learn more about insomnia and how you can seize the night. And Carpe the DM. Make their mission your mission because they will not rest until we all rest.